I'm John Hall. This is Drink Beer, Think Beer, the podcast that gets to the bottom of every pint. And this is Jace Marty of the August Shell Brewing Company. Yeah, that abso- don't? absolutely. Like when we first started, it was a lot of looking at the historical recreations um, and, and then kind of blurring some of the lines. And even, you know, one of the beers we're going to be packaging this year, it's a three-year-old. It's, it's kind of a take on um, combining uh, an American adjunct lager recipe with Berliner Weiss. Um, and so it was a 70 30 uh, two row and corn um, made in the Berliner Weiss style. And it has this wonderful, like, Riesling character. It, it just, the, the corn just turns into this white grape character. Our full conversation is coming up next. But first, this episode is brought to you by Cigar City Brewing. I've known the folks behind the brewery since almost back to when it opened in 2007. And over the years, I've had the chance to visit Tampa during their annual Hunapu Day Festival. Yes, it's a day of big imperial stouts, but it's also a chance to try beers from around the country poured by the brewers themselves. I know we're living in an age of small boutique beer gatherings, but there's still a lot of fun to be had at the big festivals, and Hunapu should be on your list. Mark your calendar for March 13th, 2020 at the Amelie Arena in Tampa. There'll be over 100 breweries from far and wide, a true craft experience for all beer drinkers. Learn more at CigarCityBrewing.com. And Drink Beer, Think Beer is produced by Beer Edge, the newsletter for beer professionals. A subscription to Beer Edge provides readers with smart and critical insights into the business and culture of beer. We talk directly to the players making an impact and report stories our audience has not heard before. The team at Beer Edge offers up a fresh and unfiltered look at the world of beer. Subscribe now at BeerEdge.com. Welcome to Drink Beer, Think Beer. I'm John Hall, and this week I'm excited to sit down with Jace Marty, the assistant brewmaster at August Shell Brewing in Minnesota. Beer has always been the family business, but rather than follow the status quo, Jace is working to bring the brewery into new arenas, notably wild and wood-aged beers, through the Starkeller Brewery Noble Star Collection. Thanks to some long-forgotten equipment, notably fooders, in the brewery's new Ulm facility that were refurbished and moved to a separate location in town, the brewery that has long been known for box and adjunct lagers is now gaining acclaim for vibrant ales with fruit additions and great depth. Bringing change to a brewery that has been around for nearly 160 years is not easy, both for the company itself and for customer perception. But adaptation is key to survival and growth these days, something Jace knows well. As the brewery prepares to transition leadership to a new generation of the family, Jay sat down with me in Denver just before the Great American Beer Festival to talk about what comes next. And while it might seem like an obvious question, I wanted an answer. So I started off by asking the sixth generation brewer if his destiny was sealed even before he could walk. Here's our conversation. Was there a pressure growing up that you had to join the family business? Uh, no, it was... Like looking back, I don't know if pressure is the right word, but no, is no, there it was never, never expectation pressure. is there. No, it was kind of like the Mr. Miyagi thing, you know, a, a Karate Kid, where, um, you know, we, we would go there every day after school. That's where mom and dad worked, and and so we had lots of stuff to play around, and, um, you know, climbing on malt bags and and on tracking and all that kind of stuff. So it was, it was like a fun thing growing up, and then you know, then he would make us, you know, not make us, but like he have us do little odd jobs here and there. And sure. as you just kind of got involved in it and you start to, you know, have some of the fun things and then you do some serious, you know, uh, work and some stuff that's not so fun. And, you know, and then when it did kind of gotten into like high school and stuff and wanted a job, um, you know, you got to start at the bottom. 
It, it, it doesn't sound too much different from anybody else who whose parents have a family business. You know, if it's, yeah. you know, manufacturing or the lumber yard or mm-hmm. wherever, you know, it's just, you know, like I had friends whose parents were attorneys and had private practices and they'd go and file paperwork after school, like that kind of thing. It's yeah. just what you did. You just happened to, you know, have booze. Yeah. And I, and I think one, just growing up in it and being around and, and you know, we had very still have very low turnover so a lot of people there had been there for you know my whole life growing up and so I knew them and then when I started you know he made me start at the bottom uh, just with, with all of us and so I think there was also that earning respect kind of a thing too or you know it was, it was washing kegs and, and scrubbing floors and all kinds of stuff like that so um, it was never like oh it's the boss's kid like you know got to treat him special or anything like that it was you know get to work <laughs> and that's it and I get so the people when you were doing those those jobs early on, mm-hmm. you know, it, you weren't treated like the boss's kid, right? If you Mm-mm. if you fucked up, like mm-hmm. you'd get in trouble like anybody else. Absolutely, yeah. That's such an interesting thing, right? Because I mean, I think there's a lot of folks who would hear like, oh, you know, it's it's the family business. Of course, you were going to become a brewer. Of course, you were going to have every every opportunity. Mm-hmm. I wonder how much different your life would be if it was just sort of like, yeah, come on into the boardroom or, you know, like, let's put you on the brew deck and trial by fire, or, you yeah. know, whatever it was. No, I, I in, in this is kind of some of the wisdom, like my dad always kind of passes down is he would always talk about the other brewery in, in Duwam, which is the Hounstein Brewing Company. And they closed in uh, January 1st, 1970. And they were doing just fine. And they had a crooked accountant. And really? that, that bled them dry that way. And it, he said it, it really came down to the, the people in charge didn't know how to make beer, and so they didn't know why money was disappearing. You know, they thought, oh, that's just part of the brewing process or whatever. And so Yikes. he said it was really important that you, you, know, you need to know how to make beer. You can't just go in and, you know, from just run the business. you gotta, you got to be a brewer and understand the brewing process too. It also comes with adaptation, right? I mean, I, I, I think of... So your brewery, uh, we're drinking your Keller Pills right now, which, mm-hmm. um, thank you, because this is exactly what I needed. Uh, family tradition since 1860. Yeah. So, I mean, you guys are not the oldest? We're the second oldest family owned brewery in the country. Sure. Correct. So. Next year's our 160th anniversary. Which is amazing. Yeah. Like, you know, to, to, to think about, you know, and, and I know a lot of this has been well-trodden in, in other places of how you survived prohibition and, mm-hmm. um, uh, and, and how you've grown, but I think that, that the fascinating thing for me when I when I when I visited the brewery in the past, uh, and then talked to you uh, as often as I try to, um, that there is this this evolution that it's not just okay. Here's the grain belt. Here's the shells. Here's the you know the everything that we've done since 1860. Mm-hmm. Um, you've you've changed, and I want to get into uh, to to the new venture uh, in, yeah, in, in just a little bit, but like. That's got to be a tough thing too, though, right? Of yeah, evolution. Tough, but necessary. You know, you you can't stay the same. You know, sometimes you have to change to stay the same. Sure. And I think that's what we've been really good at, and why we're still probably in business to this day. You know, and, and even going back to like me growing up in the business, it was completely different when I was a little kid. I mean, it was, uh, you know, I was born '83, um, so late '80s. You know, yep. as I was hanging around. We were doing a little bit of our own craft. I mean, we had our, our pills and our Hefeweizen, um, but it was mostly deer brand. And then we were starting to do contracts. And yeah. it was, you know, it was pretty slow at the brewery. And it was, craft beer was not what it is now back then. Um, you know, we evolved into doing quite a bit of contract brewing. 
and and also expanding on our own styles and then when we we bought grain belt uh we knew that we wanted to get out of contract brewing and that was our opportunity to you know do produce only our beers but that was a, a huge risk at that time in 2002 because we were buying a, a adjunct lager recipe uh essentially yeah. from a brewery that it was closing and so it was you know the exact opposite of what the market was doing at that time and now i think if you you know look you know uh coming up on 20 years later the pendulum is swimming back swinging back now towards lagers and so i think that that puts us in a really good position and and you know we've always been a lager brewery so it's you know it it helps diversify us from like having that you know domestic lager and then also having our craft beers so the whole swing back towards lagers because i mean the the beers when i think of grain belt you know i think of sort of the american adjunct and you know and yeah. and, and there's nothing wrong with that i mean mm-hmm. it, for for me i know that there's you know the beer purists or the craft beer or whatever like screw you go get a then 24 pack of this and just you know like go go kill it somewhere yeah. like cuz it's it's just a refresher it, it exactly that's the thing mm-hmm. As you start to see the lager trends change these days, and we're starting to see a lot of the lager breweries start to market the calorie content and the carb content, I mean, a lot of that fits into your portfolio already, right? I mean, maybe it's not 100 calories. It might be a, a little bit more, but we're also not talking barley wine levels. So no, there's, yeah. have you noticed younger generations coming around to your beer because of the lightness of it that's something that we haven't really explored from like a marketing angle okay you know we've but even anecdotally have you seen yeah uh definitely um and i think as as that word kind of gets out you know hey like light lagers are are actually you know healthy ish type of beers you know like our our light beer is five less calories than a white claw yeah when you tell people that it just like (laughs) (laughs) they just can't comprehend i thought white claw was as light as it gets that's your marketing budget right there. Uh, and it there. still That's tastes just, like beer, yeah, actually, you know? Yeah. And so that the whole seltzer craze is this blowing up phenomenon, but, you know, I I, I still like beer, and so I, yeah. I still want to drink beer, and that's where I think light beer has a huge opportunity moving forward is that you could still have the beer taste and it's still, you know, less calories. So is that something that you're pushing pushing towards? So this Keller Pills that we have in front of us right now, yeah. is this is this new? Uh, yes, Ish? so this is a revamp. Okay. Um, we launched it uh, just a not quite a year ago. Um, and we, we first introduced our pills in 1984. And so this that beer has evolved. So this is kind of like the fourth generation of it. Um, this one is all uh, Weirman uh, base malt and then all uh, new German hop varieties. So we got a little bit of bittering with some Hallertau Blanc, uh, a big uh, middle edition of Saphir, and then late edition Callistas and dry hop with Callista, really which nice. is a like a 2.8 alpha new German hop variety. Do you remember what the first generation was? Yeah. Um, so it was a all six row. It was our first all malt beer. <laughs> 100% six row. Uh, bittered with Cascade. And um, it was like a 10-minute edition of uh, Hollertown Middle Fruit. Okay. And we actually did, for the 30th anniversary, did like a variety pack of the four kind of different beers over time. And a lot of people really dug the, the original. I think that the six row has that graininess maybe a little rough roughness to it but that some people definitely dug yeah so when you think about the evolution of these styles and certainly think about the evolution of the brewery Mm -hmm. there's some of the the legacy brands and you know or the traditional brands and and you know and and obviously you guys are as traditional as as it gets um 
when do you have the conversations of, okay, like, yeah, we're known for this, but we should also be, at least have one finger on the pulse of yeah. trying to evolve and adapt and... We... Yeah, that, those conversations happen regularly. Um, and I think that's one of the, the cool things with my dad being open to having these conversations and not being so, you know, this is how we're going to make it and we're going to keep forward, yeah. moving forward. Um, but also trying to, like, stay within who we are. You know, we're, we're, we're a lager brewery. And, you know, we made lagers when they weren't cool, and now we're making them when they're starting to get cool again, too. So it's like, let's not give up on that category. But be creative within that space. Um, you know, one of my good friends, he has Whibby Brewing Company here in, in Colorado. Yeah. And he's, you know, doing the same thing. Like, we're an all lager brewery. We can do anything an ale can do. Um, but, it, you know, it has the added benefit of the crispness of a lager. Um, and so I kind of taken that same approach a little bit um, within this, the styles and, um, you know, dabbling with, with newer hop varieties and, and, and trying to get experimental hop profiles, but still within a lager yeast. Do you think it would be a tough sell to do... A hazy IPA under the <laughs> Shell's beer name these days? Yeah, I think so. Have uh, you thought about it? Oh, for sure. Um, you know, the sales staff pushes for it a lot. and I don't know. You know when there's 9,000 coming up and 10,000 breweries, you got to specialize in something or you just get lost in the shuffle. And yeah. so, yeah, maybe it's not the, you know, maybe it's not the right decision, but that's also what we're doing. You have pivoted in the last couple of years, though, and I'm, and I'm sort of wondering, um, so let's talk about, we don't have to open this just yet because we're, yeah. we're drinking this, but no let, let, let's talk about Noble Star. Mm-hmm. And this has been your... This has been my baby. Yeah, <laughs> your, your pet project <laughs> uh, sure. in, in a lot of ways. And yep. um, I think people have probably heard the story elsewhere, but like I think it's it, it, it bears repeating of how this was born from... A lager brewery going back to, you know, the eighteen sixties. Yeah. Uh, to so so what's the, yeah. I think, what's the history of Noble Star? Yeah, I think this is a great example of us trying to put ourselves in a box and be creative within it. Uh, so our Noble Star collection is our sour beer line, and it is made exclusively in our original lagering tanks from nineteen thirty six. So we have ten of them still. They were used. Um, they were installed right after prohibition. Um, it's kind of an odd story with there too. They were two stories underground. And um, for us to install wood tanks in 1936 would have been a step back in technology-wise. Right. Uh, we'd already started converting over to glass-lined steel tanks turn of the century. So 30 years later, to put in wood tanks was, was not, you know, being moving forward with, with uh, technology. But when you don't make any money for 13 years, uh, I think you've got to make you some gotta, financial yeah. decisions as well. Um, but we used them until 1991. They were uh, retired then. Put into storage two years later, and but left two in the brewery. And coming up on our 150th anniversary in 2008, that's kind of when we started to take a look at them again. The two that were left there uh, to restore them originally it was just to make an anniversary beer, and then it kind of shifted of like, you know, we could do something pretty special actually with these tanks, these these old wooden tanks, making sour beers, and that was a totally unexplored uh, category for us at that time. And um, I mean, that that must have been a foreign language when. When that came up, in, it took in years, a like years to yeah. convince. Um, but again, you it, want to intentionally do what? Yeah, intentionally introduce bacteria and Britannomyces to the brewery, uh, <laughs> and make a a beer that's going to age a year. That's three and a half percent alcohol. Yeah, <laughs> and sour. Um, so yeah, but it was, you know, we we decided we're going to focus exclusively on Berliner Weiss. 
uh, it fits within our German heritage and what we're doing. And it's just it's it's going to reach a different category that we were not not part of the conversation with. And so uh, it ties in with our history and it's a part of, of who we are. It's, you know, the last 10 tanks like it left in the United States that we know of, maybe possibly in the world. Um, and so that also has a really cool story and they're functional. Uh, they're they're going to make something distinctly different from just the size, the shape, the the microoxidation you get through the the cypress wood instead of oak, um, and so it makes a distinct product at the same time. So how big are these? Um, I mean, so cypress wood. It, it, there's so much interesting. There's so much that I find interesting on the the physical product or the mm-hmm. physical uh, vessel itself. Like the, the beers, I've, I've been lucky enough to, to visit, and I've, I've had some of these beers with you before, mm-hmm. but there is, there's something about the, these physical vessels that are, I mean, the fact that they're still, you know, it's 90 years usable, later. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I, they're beautiful. Um, they're, they're oval-shaped, uh, so they're 8 by 10 by 12 feet high. Uh, they, they hold about 4,500 gallons. Okay. Um, there's some a little size difference between them. Sure. Um, I mean, they're hand built, and uh, they were originally uh, pitch lined because we we're making lager beer, yeah. so they were wax lined to present prevent any flavor, and they're also cypress again to minimize any flavor contribution because they're being used for lagering tanks. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we've we had them dry ice blasted to remove all the pitch on the inside and also clean up the outsides, and uh, they're they're beautiful. You can see all the original kind of not cut marks, but like uh, gouges from the, the Coopers uh, hammering down the rings and still the original tank doors. They're 47 pounds each. Jesus. Uh, the only thing new on them is the, the, the valve on the bottom and the sample port. Yeah. And like everything else, and everything else was just, it was like ready to go after you did all this restoration. Yeah. <laughs> In a very More or less. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was not quite that easy, but um, the last tank we got to stop leaking took over a year. How'd you do that? Um... <laughs> Eventually, got in contact with a, a French Cooper, and it was a two-part epoxy that they use for tanks. Yeah. Um, and so, it's really hard because you you fill it up, you get to let the wood hydrate, and you know they all leak originally, and it slowly stops. You know, but the stuff that keeps leaking, then they got to drain it, clean it, let it dry, put the epoxy on, and then start the whole process over. So it was this this year-long process of filling it, wait till it stops leaking, or, or it keeps leaking to the point where you know it's not going to stop and you got to drain it figure out where the leak is and so it was just this constant feeling draining feeling draining i don't know you mentioned the accountant earlier i imagine like your accountants are sort of like looking at this and being like all right like you know water ain't cheap and uh what yeah. are you guys doing here uh in the midwest water's not okay. not too expensive it's a little, all right. so yeah uh, I don't know. I just bought a house, and you know, I, I get my water bill quarterly, and I'm like, "Yeah, I'm sorry, what?" Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I mean, the, first world problem. Yeah. The uh, I think the reason we even got started is because it was equipment that we had. Um, you know, we were doing primary fermentation in, in a in a used dairy tank that we weren't using anymore, so yeah. we we were able to like cobble the and kind of bootstrap it within just parts that we had. The only thing we had to buy was a, a, a gravity bottle filler. Six head bottle filler. I think everything else was equipment that we had. So, in introducing some of these microbes and introducing some of these new styles, uh, you eventually moved this project out of the initial grounds. Yeah, or yep. the original we, grounds. We wanted to have all ten tanks. There was just two tanks originally left in the brewery. That's where the program started from, and yeah, the other eight were in storage. So we uh, took those out, built a building specifically for our sour program, 
and then have the tap room inside of it. So when you come visit it, you sit in the middle of all 10 tanks. It's really uh, dimly lit. It's kind of a cool experience that... Um, no, I, I I visited a few years ago, yeah. and it was just I think it was right after you opened it, or I think you were still in the process of I forget the 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 actual timing for it. I came out for uh, Bachfest, yeah, yeah. Which yep. uh, if, if <laughs> I, I will say this, if if anybody is listening to this, that uh, that is one of the festivals uh, I I'd say top five that you need to get on your bucket list to go and visit just because of its it's a special festival, mm-hmm. like it is. Unlike anything else I've ever been to before, yeah. it's and like it the is anti-beer festival. Yeah, it really is. I mean, we're ba- we're basically just drinking Bach just, in just Bach beer. Yeah, but outside, in uh, the south part, uh, the southern part of your state, yeah. uh, Minnesota, mm-hmm. um, in February. Correct. So, I mean, it's not pleasant. Last like this, year, like this isn't a good sell for people. <laughs> like you yeah. know, last year set up in the morning, it was ten below zero. It got to like a high of seven that day, and then yeah. it just dipped down below zero again by the time the sun set down. So I'll never forget standing with you and your father outside, and I had a mug, uh, a glass mug uh, that that you had given me mm-hmm. uh, to to fill up, and. The temperature difference between the ambient air and the cold beer that was being poured into it caused it to actually, like, shatter. The glass shattered in my hand, <laughs> and all I was holding was just a, a metal stein or a, a glass stein handle. Yep, and the three that. of us were like, I think your father's like, I've never seen that before. And it's like, well, I'm going home then because <laughs> this, is, like, this, is, this, this is crazy. It's a festival worth doing. But, like, yeah. have you added... So aside from those ten tanks, have you added new ones? No, no. I mean, that's that's a you can make a lot of sour beer there. Sure. Um, and up until now, we've only basically sold them in Minnesota and the in the border states. So yeah. We've really kept our territory low. Uh, we're looking at signing with a kind of a national distribution company where we can kind of hotspot some of the bigger markets in the United States and and help grow our sour, sour program that way. So we'll see. Uh, but I, I still think you know that's what makes our program unique and special. And so to add more. You know, new tanks or even used wine tanks, kind of, I don't know, minim- maybe minimizes it a little bit. If you did though, mm-hmm. they would have to hit certain specifics, right? I mean, like, like um, specs, right? Because you you wouldn't necessarily want, you wouldn't. I, I don't know. Maybe you'd bring in oak. Maybe you'd bring in something else. But like, if you know, hundred year old cypress is. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if I could find some more of them, sure. sure. <laughs> Um, have I, you thought about that? Like, though, if the if you wanted to grow this program, would that have to be siloed from something else? Like, would the original ten be something different from anything new that came in you know, later some, on? I had some interesting conversation with John Mallet from Bell's, and they, sure. they um, the old Stroh's tanks. They got some of them that they re- rebuilt into some primary for yeah. They, so, they got them from Milwaukee. Yeah. Yep. So we kind of we talked about that a little bit, but he said that you know they basically took all the usable pieces of wood left so um you know one of the things that we can do and we have been doing is like we call it our double barrel where we finish it in a you know a, a whiskey barrel or a wine barrel something like that so you know you can do the initial bulk fermentation in the wood and then move them to a smaller barrel so you can kind of increase production that way so i think if we if it does continue to expand i think we'd probably go that route versus adding the big fooders I mean, that also speaks to, and and this is my own sort of ignorance in saying that of assuming that you just want to get bigger than, than 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 you were, and I think that that's sort of the way that we approach beer these days. Of you know, well, how many, how much more can you do, or how mm-hmm. much more can you expand, and how much more can you grow? And you, 
with 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 your family's brewery has seen you know steady growth and you know uh mm-hmm. status quo and steady growth and down years and up years and and everything else in between and i wonder if that sort of changes your perspective of you know somebody who comes in right now and says okay well you know we 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 have capacity for you know a thousand barrels a year but you know we we want to grow to be 15,000 in the next 5 years like they have this sort of vision for it yeah i'm wondering if that's no i yeah, I guess that's that's not really what we were thinking with that, okay. with that program. We wanted to. That's my fault know, for 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 asking. No, no, yeah. not, not at all. It was you know this is like the ten tanks are a part of our history, and I think building a program around those ten tanks was really what helped make it special. And so, yeah. let's let's let it be what it is, and 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 we can make a lot of beer with within those ten tanks, and and be creative, like I said, with maybe shorter initial primary times in there, and in, in longer times secondary. So, so I was going to ask. So what? So 4,500 gallons, right? Mm-hmm. Is that what you said? Um, 140 barrels. So how often are you turning those? Uh, or in a perfect world, how yeah, often would you so like to? We actually had a bunch that, you know, sour beers are, it's a lot of learning and it's a yeah. really long uh, feedback loop of a year, two years later, like, all oh, that worked, that didn't work. Um, and so I went through a stretch where I was kind of second guessing myself and, and going into those with the Brett... Um, too dry and not having enough food for Brett. And so we, we made a whole bunch of beers that had a, a, just a ton of residual, not a ton, but they were like three Play-Doh versus like, you know, sub two. And they just slowed way down. Yeah. So we got a bunch of beers that are coming up on like two years old that just have been really slow to mature. And I think as, you know, we're going to start now in the fall season again, um, we got three we're going to empty. Um, of intentionally mashing for dryness to, to maybe speed them along a little bit and, and kind of finding that balance in between somewhere, uh, not trying to leave so much residual sugars back. I guess the other question, too, as far as brewing goes, are you doing everything at the original shell's yep. location yep. and then trucking it over and just putting it in totes? And yep, everything. Um, we brew at the main brewery to truck unfermented wort out there, and then we pitch... Uh, it's a mixed culture primary fermentation, so that's why we can't. That's super pitch. labor intensive too. Oh, it's it's stupid. <laughs> uh, the first you're rubbing your face yeah. as you do. This is not video, but like you just have this like world weary look yeah, on your the, face right the, now. When we built the the new place and, and we started, I talked to a bunch of new homes. There's a lot of dairy places around, so I was talking to some of the trucking companies. And they all have these massive tanker trucks. Yeah. That, you know, I'm like, all right, if I'm going to use your truck, it's going to be half full when I move it. And I'm thinking it's going to slosh all over and all this stuff. So I was like, okay. So we had four 600-gallon uh, stainless steel totes <laughs> that we put on a car trailer. And we would uh, shuttle back and forth all the work. And it was a stupid amount of work now cleaning I'm all those. Sh- and, yeah. Jesus, yeah. But it so was do you guys trying to get it off the you ground. guys use a tanker now? Now we've gone to a tanker truck, yeah. Okay. And it's like, all right, it's it's unfermented yet. It's gonna get, If it sloshes around a little bit, it's not the end of the world. That's cool. Yeah. Was that a hard sell to your accountant? Uh, <laughs> you say accountant like we have one. Yeah. It's just my dad. <laughs> um, <laughs> hey, dad. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, it's... We were just bootstrapping it, getting yeah. off the ground, and as we grew into it, it's like, all right, this doesn't make any sense. Like, we're just wasting way too much time. Let's just do the truck, and so. So you brought a bottle mm-hmm. with you that I'm curious about. Uh, yeah. Um, so this one actually has a, a lot of ties into kind of the origins of the program and what got me into sours, and 
Um, so this one's called Alpha State. Uh, this is our newest release. And it is a, we call it a Berlin-style Flanders Red aged on cherries, <laughs> which is really? a, a mouthful. But so the beer that got me into sours and, and also subsequently my dad um, was Rodenbach. And I, to this day, absolutely admire that, that beer, that brewery. Um, yeah. I mean, how it. can you not? Yeah. It's, it's incredible. Take a big swig there. Wow. Yeah. Um, but when we started this program, it was, all right, we're going to make Berliner Weiss, um, but see where we can push it in, in different, you know, be creative within the style. And I always wanted to make that homage to Rodenbach as we, as we, uh, once yeah. we got going. And even when you visit Starkeller, that tap room is designed to kind of mimic the, that great hall at Rodenbach. It was an experience I got uh, when I was in brewing school. We went and visited the place and, just kind of one of those moments is like all right this is this is special this is what i want to do um and so we laid it out that way and wanted to kind of combine the two worlds i think berliner weiss actually is very similar traditionally to mm -hmm. uh flanders red production and just that mixed culture primary yeah uh, extended secondary not as, as strong of a brett character than than your lambics or your goose or something like that so um uh, we use a, a super under-modified wheat malt that we had custom-made for us. Uh, single decoction mash, no boil, all, all Berliner Weiss. All the really? strains we use are uh, cultured from East German closed Berliner Weiss breweries, the lactose breads. Um, and so took a Flanders red malt bill, like a heavy uh, wheat-based malt bill, uh, made it in the Berliner Weiss style. This one aged for about a year and a half. Then we put it on um, over 6,000 pounds of Michigan Montmorency cherry cherries for uh, six months, and then it's uh, bottle conditioned for another year after that. We'll have more of the conversation in just a brief moment, but first, I wanted to thank this episode's sponsor, Cigar City Brewing. Their support help keeps the lights on here, and as you look towards the rapidly approaching new year, you should get Hunapu Day on your beer travel list. This year, it's March 13th, 2020, in Tampa, and you can learn more at cigarcitybrewing.com slash events. And now... Back to my conversation with Jace Marty, recorded at the Falling Rock Tap House in Denver. Technically, the name of the project—I was calling it Noble Star, but it, it, it's Star Keller. It, yeah, so it's super confusing. We're actually going to rebranding at the end of the year, and it's just going to be Star Keller. So, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. For the we made it intentionally. Because it was yeah. Noble Star when yeah. you first. Yep. Yeah, it's when the Noble Star launched. collection, and yeah. Okay. We, but the Star Keller was the that's the, name it, of the, our the physical system. location. Yep. yep. Of, so we're just going with that moving forward. Okay. So you've put me at a serious disadvantage here now because <laughs> Why is that? Well th this beer is remarkable. So very much an extension of the beers your family has been making for so long in that it turns into a really wonderful background experience in that like let's not worry about everything else that's happening around us right now like you know like let's crack open a couple of cans of you know, whatever, and, and, you know, we're going hunting or we're, I'm not, but like, you know, like, like real people are and like, you know, or we're just like sitting around the backyard fire pit or we're just doing whatever else like that. Like those beers are an addendum to life as it were. And mm -hmm. this to me strikes as let's just put the microphones away and just kind of like, you know, like talk about our kids for a while or just yeah. like, like whatever, like just because it lends itself to, and when I think about those two very different beer styles that your brewery now makes, mm -hmm. that sort of strikes to me as the common thread of 
you know, it's not the be all end all. This this shouldn't necessarily be something that like you know people are untapping and getting lost in the moment of, but it should enhance the experience of whatever moment you're in. Yeah, beers just part of the conversation that it is the the extent of the conversation where it's you know beer is a social element it's it's just what brings people together and and i think that's where you know uh lager beers and and session beers and you know yeah i i absolutely agree with your saying there's this god this is really fun uh there i mean there, there's almost the, this chocolatey thing on the mm-hmm. on the back though it's like a little bit of like not a bitters baker's chocolate but um, but it has that sort of, not milkiness to it, but a little bit of like that, like earthy cacao, uh, like an almond spice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's just, there's a lot of fun things that are going on here. So if somebody who comes from a lager background and I mean, we didn't even get into the fact that you worked at a brewery when you were in high school and how popular that must've made you, uh, <laughs> with your friends, where do you now look for creativity? I mean, Rodenbach, I, certainly, and I, and I love that, and I admire that, because I wish that more brewers were looking at old-world recipes and things that are established. I mean, Sophie from uh, Goose Island was the homage to Orval. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I have that right. And, you know, I, I, I give Greg Hall a lot of credit for that, of trying to find ways to replicate or to, to, to push it forward and to, to, to pay homage to. And these days it's sort of like, well, we threw glitter in our thing or, you know, hey, here's yeah. red dye number five or, or, or whatever it is. Um, but we're, so aside from, from, from this and, and sort of a Rodenbach uh, inspiration, mm-hmm. where do you look for inspirations for the Berliner styles that you're trying to do? And, you know, have you found things that work better that complement your vessels versus... Yeah, abs- don't? absolutely. Like when we first started, it was a lot of looking at the historical recreations, um, and and then kind of blurring some of the lines. And even you know, one of the beers we're going to be packaging this year, it's a three-year-old. It's it's kind of a take on um, combining uh, an American adjunct lager recipe with Berliner Weiss. Um, and so it was a That's seventy-thirty uh, two-row and corn um, made in the Berliner Weiss style. And it has this wonderful, like, Riesling character. It, it just, the, the corn just turns into this white grape character. And it's at really three years old in January uh, is when we're going to pull it. Um, it's it's really something unique. And, it, and we went with potentially a little higher gravity, to kind of taking that literal, you know, champagne of the north thing. Um, <laughs> I think it's it's really cool. And then we're collabing with a, uh, a local... Um, She's starting her own like sparkling wine business, okay. so we're gonna do a collab. Um, her whole thing is method champagne, uh, champenois, of that actually riddling bottles and then blending in uh, her grape juice must really? um, to to really amplify that white grape character. Minnesota has some really cool white wines, so that's the cold climate white wines. Yeah. Um, so like Itasca is a really cool variety, and uh, La Crescent is another one that's got this really cool like. Delicate like apricot, uh, kind of from that program. Inspiration is, is having everything rooted in tradition, and then just being curious with other, you know, across all styles. So talking to winemakers a lot, even though winemakers don't really like to share secrets or, or even talk to brewers, especially ones with <laughs> making things with Brett. Um, try and draw. That hasn't changed with the natural wine movement. I'm not that tied into wine, okay. so I, 
you know, sure. I, w- I would the ones by you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're a little more isolated in the north, but um, you know, kind of looking at all categories and just it's just having conversations. I think this this weekend is a great you know inspirational weekend at, at GABF. Um, traveling obviously is you know inspiration comes in a lot of different ways, and so always trying to be curious and then be open and and thinking about it, but not constantly thinking about it. Kind of like. Um, multitasking in slow motion a little bit of, yeah. of just, you know, I, I'm big into food. And so you're just having those food experiences and talking about things. And so, yeah, I think inspiration can come from many different areas. So the inspiration, though, I, I think is sort of interesting, right? Because we see a lot of Berliner styles that mm-hmm. are out there these days. And if we think of like Wakefield or Carton or some of these other places that are doing, uh, you know, quick kettle sours and, uh, you know, they call them you know, Florida Vice or, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever it is that that are out there these days. Um, You're going back sort of like old school a lot of ways because you're giving it time. It's sort of the traditional but then sort of the modern but then back to traditional, like where you're fruiting a lot of these things but then you're giving them time in a traditional way. It's a tough thing to actually say, like if this is actually like a – you know, you call it here a Berliner style, uh, you know, wheat. Berlin style wheat ale. Berlin style wheat ale yeah. aged on cherries is what Alpha State uh, is in front of me right now. But, I mean, that's, aside from being a word salad, like, it's <laughs> yeah, it's I, not easily identifiable. For sure. And this is something that we kind of struggle with. Of When we when we made our first beer. Um, Which was what? Star of the North. It was just a traditional Berliner Weiss. It was aged for about a year. Um we were the 40... But see, I can't imagine that, like, other brewers are listening to this. I can't imagine anybody's listening to this. But, like, other brewers listening to this and saying, like, yeah, but you can turn a Berliner out in eight days. Kettle souring wasn't a thing when we started. Um, it, we were the 42nd Berliner Vice on Beer Advocate. Really? On the website. I remember, because I, I was... Hey, kids, that's a website that <laughs> used to exist before Untapped. Yeah. Before Untapped. Yeah. Uh, that's how, how long ago. Um, <laughs> Which is not that long ago. How long know, ago was it's that? It's crazy how fast that things Is it changed. five years? Uh, 2013 when we, we released the first one. All right. So coming, up on, so coming up on six. Six years. Mm-hmm. All right. Right? Is my math Seven years. Right? Seven, years. seven years. Yeah. But that's amazing that seven years ago you were the 42nd on Beer Advocate. Yeah, and there's probably three million now. Exactly. Um, yeah. So I, I went to went to brewing school in Berlin, and it was a dead style over there. And I there's two teachers that um, were into it, and they would do this kind of side project. And so I got kept in contact with them. Um, and now I've started going back. Berliner Berliner Weiss is starting to take off now in Berlin a little bit. And I was back this summer at the Berliner Weiss Gipfel, it was the, the Berliner Weiss Summit. And it was like the third or fourth one they've had now. Um, and w- one of the beers we have in, in the tanks is a recreation of Schulteis, which was the last traditionally made Berliner Weiss brewery in Berlin. They closed yeah. in 2006. And I tried to piece together as much information as I could find through, like, Michael Jackson's books and, and just other, like, Ron Pattinson's blog and just information I could of figure course. out. Tried to brew it as close as possible um, to what I thought was the authentic recipe. Mine did not sour as quickly as theirs. I was trying to hit their, their specs and everything. That's yeah. fine. When I got to the summit, uh, there's a beer historian that I've uh, become friends with online, um, Benedict Cook, and he ended up interviewing the brewmaster of Schulteis at the end. Gave him all the blogs, everything. Here you go. 
and the, um, the painstaking amount of work that went into making a 2.9% ABV beer with this, it's it just, it, it cannot exist anymore. But anybody, you, you need to have, be horribly inefficient or like a massive scale um, because they're constantly adding back old aged beer. They were aging it for three months uh, in stainless. Um, all this mixed culture that they didn't know how many strains were going. They were just constantly repitching the strain. Um, we've cultured out the bottles, and there's probably a dozen Brett strains and really, uh, you know, a ton of lacto strains. That's cool. And it was in the in Benedict was talking about when he was interviewing this guy, how, like how passionate he was still. Long gone, you know, 2006. Yeah. And the amount of passion that went into making this low ABV beer. Um, you know, three months in stainless, and then it would bottle condition for another eight weeks before it would go to the market. And and to think, you know, this brewery that was, you know, eventually did go out of business, yeah. the amount of work that they were putting in, and then they were competing directly against Berliner Kindle was the other one in, in, in Berlin, which was essentially a kettle sour. Sure. Um, you know, that, that contrast of, you know, this crazy artisanal product that they were making over this long time that was very much you know between the pinkies of understanding how his, his culture was evolving and moving and then just the straight acid bomb the other one and and i think um i don't know i've just I always kind of resonate with that that the schultice type of method do, do you think that though that that speaks to your family history like it does it speak to the longevity that you grew up surrounded by i mean lagering one takes longer than mm-hmm. we, we you know are accustomed to with ales obviously but when you have you know 160 year old history or 150 at that point whatever you know like does does time matter less do you think in your mind um no not that time doesn't matter uh, when we started i didn't know what kettle souring was yeah it wasn't like a thing and so that was i thought that's just how you made it um i didn't know the full extent of schultice but uh I also wanted to incorporate our wooden tank, so it was kind yeah. of a combination of, of not knowing what kettle souring is and then understanding that we could make something special with a part of our history being part of what makes it what it is. Yeah. That you went to brewing school. Mm-hmm. Being a family business, you could have... You could have obviously. I, I, it sounds like your parents would have been like, "Yeah, if you want to go be a architect or you want to go, you know, uh, mm-hmm. join the Coast Guard or you know, whatever, whatever it was." It sounds like they would have supported you on that whole thing. Yeah. Being in the family business, though, as brewing, um, do you think you could do, or you think you would have gone into any other aspect of, you know, accounting or you know, distribution or anything, <laughs> or or if if you are going to join the family business. Like, is it, is that almost a manifest destiny of, well, you got to be a brewer? No. Um, so I, I went to college. I, I studied graphic design and I kind of started off in like the advertising side of things. Um, so did package design, label design and work with distributors a lot. Uh, even though I was, I was homebrewing a bunch. Um, that's just, <laughs> were you actually homebrewing? Oh, of course. Yeah. That's how the whole sour program started. I got into sours like early on and, um, yeah, I, f- I find that I, for some reason that just tickles me of just like you got a whole warehouse full of beer that you can, you know, just sign out or, you know, pay cost on and uh, you're home brewing. Yeah. No, it's I, I loved it. I, I mean, I haven't homebrewed in a while. Obviously, yeah, it, but, it's, it's a little bit um, harder to do these days. Yeah. 
no, I, I was fascinated <laughs> with it. And, it, you know, I always wanted to, to make beer. And, but, uh, like I said, went to college for design and, and was working the advertising side of things. But I always knew I wanted to get into brewing eventually. So it kind of went through a whole brand redesign packaging-wise and um, learned a lot on, like, the sales distribution side of things and then wanted to transition uh, into the brew house and... and when you did, I remember when you guys did the, the the redesign of the of the packaging and everything. What was the? That had to have been a really hard thing to achieve correctly. Of, of kind of the scene as you drive into the brewery, so trying to you know stay relevant but also be traditional at the same time. Yeah. You know, but you but a, that's that's got to be a challenge though. Yeah, it definitely is. And then when you launched Noble Star uh, or Star Keller, uh, I guess as I'll say. Um, you wanted to keep some of the things so that people you wanted to go off of the the backs of that history yeah, yeah. but then it, it also stands out i mean cajun cork and um it's almost a uh an oversized orval bottle is yeah. is the way that I've, I've i've sort of thought of this uh, in the past like down to the way that the label sits you know almost on the shoulders of the bottle not necessarily mm-hmm. the neck all, of the body but all yeah done by hand yeah is it is, <laughs> yeah. is it still yep yeah, I mean, if you can tell by the perfectly lined up label in the back there. All right, well, now that, <laughs> now that you're just showing off all of your yeah. secrets and everything else like that. Um, uh, one thing I just wanted to talk about quickly, though, is the grounds of the brewery, though, yeah. because you talk about it on the on the uh, the Keller Pills. How many acres? Uh, we're on 40 acres of wooded hillside bank on the yeah. River. No, so we have uh, quite a bit of land that would be below the brewery um, yeah. that was originally, you know, the reason the brewery exists where it is is because it was its proximity to the river and it was very um, sheltered from a hillside perspective and there was a water source there. So you could cut on the hillside for the caves, you had the natural water spring there, and then you could cut ice from the river down below. Yeah. Um, and it's also protected from the wind. Uh, you know, it blows over the brewery instead of at it. So survived a lot of storms where like the one directly on the other side of the hill, uh, the Houndstown Brewery got completely leveled. Um, over and over yeah. again. Yeah. So that that location was very strategic um we have if you come visit us the, you know the victorian gardens um Augustel was you know big in the nature so we have deer and peacocks yeah so <laughs> so yeah people will see brewery cats or brewery dogs you guys have peacocks have which peacocks i was just deer. you know mm-hmm. fascinated by um when i first showed up how many peacocks do you guys have uh we have three right now um was that one of your high school jobs like go feed the peacocks <laughs> Uh, when I was when I was real little, because um, my grandma lived in the in the big house, we would always go. We'd take the jeep and we'd drive, you know, down the road and cut leaves for the deer, and we'd come back and then feed the feed the peacocks and the deer. So that was yeah, early on. I remember it was an early job. Yep, for sure. Which was kind of that you know again you know it was doing the fun stuff and and you guys have three of them. Yeah, um, the the hen didn't have babies this year. So, okay. Um, if we get too many, they they get a little territorial territorial so and they just start picking the, each other off is yeah that... try and keep the the, the flock kind of small but fascinating and you know rotate them in because obviously yeah things can get a little weird too. and they hang out during Bachfest, which like sort yeah, of like threw me off like they, they, the they just and... don't mind the cold weather apparently yeah and especially like mating season too you can literally pet them really mm-hmm. they're that friendly yeah okay <laughs> Going into your 160th year, uh, you mentioned uh, your dad's getting ready to uh, retire. Mm-hmm. You going to stay with it? Yeah. So actually, my brother's taking over. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, Kyle's Kyle's the my younger brother, the middle son. Uh, there's three of us. Um, so I'll be 
continuing to work on the brewing side of things and he's he's been more working with like sales staff and then the, the, the business side of things and so he's kind of stepping into that role and yeah um, my dad's 69th birthday is in October so yeah this whatever two weeks from now um, yeah so he's him and my mom are getting ready to, to pass it on that's a that's a good thing and that, keeping it in the family that has to be important right you don't make it to this point without it being correct that mm-hmm. yeah I mean there's there's four family owned breweries legacy breweries left in the country so, do you guys have like a secret Facebook group that uh, <laughs> you all talk on we're all friends okay. um, <laughs> we did a we did a, a joint event at CBC in Philadelphia a couple years back yeah who, who, awesome. who was involved in that it was you guys us Yingling FX Matt and um, Straub yeah that was a really fun event that there was, was uh, all of the beer writers showed up for that and we just drank lager all night long yeah, and it, it, yeah. it was a good time um so we have uh, cbc's in minneapolis in 2022 so i think yeah. we're gonna do another one there perfect yeah. uh you can count me on being there that's awesome um jace thanks for sitting down i appreciate hey, thank it you. thanks for having me all right appreciate it. that's jace marty of august shell brewing in new Ulm, minnesota recorded at the falling rock tap house in denver our thanks to them for the hospitality and no joke if you can get your hands on a bottle of the beers coming out of the star keller pounce immediately you won't be disappointed so we're now 11 episodes into this podcast and i hope you've enjoyed each one doing the show is great fun for me and your feedback and support is really appreciated subscribing and even leaving a review on your podcast platform of choice goes a long way to helping other people find the show if you like what you hear if you have suggestions if you want to tell me about someone you think i should get on mic drop me a note at john hall that's j-o-h-n-h-o-l-l at beeredge.com or join me on Twitter at John underscore Hall. Nate Schweber does the music. Jeff Quinn designed the logo. Andy Crouch really loves his elf on a shelf for some reason. And if you want to learn more about some advertising on this show and other Beer Edge products, drop Ryan Newhouse a note at ryan at beeredge.com. And speaking of that, this episode was sponsored by Cigar City Brewing. Hunapu Day is coming up on March 13th, 2020 at the Amelie Arena in Tampa. You can join a few thousand fellow beer drinkers to enjoy Imperial Stouts, talk directly with the brewers, and be the envy of your beer friends. With more than 100 breweries in attendance, it's a true craft experience for all your beer drinking needs. The festival should be on every beer bucket list, and if you go once, there's a good chance you'll likely return year after year like I do. Learn more at cigarcitybrewing.com events. And Drink Beer, Think Beer is produced by Beer Edge, the newsletter for beer professionals. A subscription to Beer Edge provides readers with smart and critical insights into the business and culture of beer. We talk directly to the players making an impact and report stories our audience has not heard before. The team at Beer Edge offers up a fresh and unfiltered look at the world of beer. Subscribe at BeerEdge.com. And that's it. That's the show for this Christmas 2019. And because you've been so good to us so far, if you're listening now in real time, there's a second brand new episode coming up as a present for your podcast listening ears. And if you're not listening in real time, there's still a podcast coming up right next and new episodes every Wednesday. Until then, I'm John Hall. Thanks so much for listening in. We'll be back next week to drink me and drink Cheers. Cheers.